Monday, March 12th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 152 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thank you for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is bassist, composer, educator, surrealist thinker, intense dude, Mappa Elliott. Mappa Elliott of Mostly Other People Do the Killing is on the show today, and I'm going to tell you right up top, today's a good one. Uh, today's an intense one. Today on the show, Mappa Elliott. Before we get into it, uh, I just want to say sorry for not putting up a show last week. Uh, I've been really busy and hectic, and um, from time to time, I think that's just going to have to happen. That being said, I would ask and encourage all of you, if you're enjoying this show, and if you're uh, on some level enjoying the things that I do, sign up at the 5049 website for my mailing list. Uh, I am putting together a newsletter that I'm going to send out three to four times a year packed with a lot of stuff. Uh, I've got some pretty big announcements coming up, uh, and I'll probably talk about it on the show next week. But sign up for the newsletter. Uh, I would appreciate it, and I'm going to put a lot of stuff in the newsletter that will only be available to people who, who sign up for it. Today on the show, Mappa Elliott. Um, I have sort of known Mappa. Uh, I've certainly been aware of him for many years. I think we literally moved to New York City like the same week, you know, summer 2002. He has led the band. Mostly other people do the killing. Uh, I think pretty much the entire time he's been here, uh, for most of it anyway. And that band, uh, for many years, was a quartet with John Arabion, who's been on the show and is one of my favorite people. Peter Evans, who's been on the show and one of my favorite people. And drummer Kevin Shea. They were a quartet for many years. Uh, the band has undergone uh, a bit of evolution. There's been um, large format versions of the band. Now it's a piano trio with uh, Ron Stabinski on piano and Kevin Shea on drums. And as you heard at the top of the show, and as you will hear throughout the show, uh, the music's very enjoyable. It's also highly conceptual uh, and I might say utterly bizarre. Um, you can enjoy the music. As a pure listening experience, but if you want to delve in uh, on some sort of surrealist Borges level of, of thinking, it's it's there. Uh, Mappa, as you will hear on the show, is a pretty heady dude and has a lot to talk about. And I will tell you that today's episode is a very, for me anyway, I found it to be very enjoyable. Uh, it goes to a lot of places. Mappa is an intense dude and, you know, he's, he's an educator you know, for his, his, his nine to five, he teaches, uh, teaches the young. And I think that sort of comes across in the way he talks about things. And, you know, this is another one of those ones where this conversation with Mappa, you know, though we've, you know, interacted, you know, here and there over the years, this was the re first real conversation. And I hope it's not the last because I enjoyed it quite a lot. If you want to find out more about Mappa Elliott and you want to find out uh, about the world of mostly other people do the killing, which at this point is pretty vast. Uh, I think they've done, you know, a dozen records or so. Go to MappaElliott.com. He's got his own record label, Hot Cup Records. He's he's released a good bit of stuff from the people in his his world. Uh, and it, it's it's good shit. It's worth your consideration. MappaElliott.com. If you're enjoying this show, go to 5049records.com. Check out past episodes. As I said, sign up for the mailing list. Um, and if you are really, really enjoying this show, please consider doing one of two things or both. 
rate, review, and subscribe to it in iTunes. That helps. Uh, and consider throwing in a few bucks over at the Patreon. Patreon.com slash 5049 podcast. That's it. Here's my conversation with Mappa Elliott. You're not this, but like when you're sober, your life's still gonna suck. You're not gonna. You're not gonna you're, you play mean, for the Yankees, right? You're saying that, that by doing this, you're not gonna gain some intangible, right? Yeah. Like life sucks for people who work their asses off, right? And put everything into it with the best intentions, and it still sucks, right? So, and it's like, I don't know if this is like a bleak outlook or not, but it's like, I... Well, I think, I think that's also got to do, I mean, your point kind of comes from the angle that like, that, that alcoholism in and of itself is not, you know, the problem. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, life that's is right. going to suck either way. You should enjoy your alcohol. But that goes back to like my, you're not an alcoholic because it's like, the alcoholics drinking is not for the reasons that we're talking about. It becomes this like other just from you know having dealt with other alcohol fully recovered totally sober for like yeah. a really long time yeah, yeah. and it's, it's just like a different thing you know but when you like you're from pennsylvania yeah. um yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah but you're from like western pennsylvania or eastern what? like eastern. scranton okay scranton but like really a town in the middle of fucking nowhere outside of scranton R- i mean i feel like it's more I'm, I'm i'm what i'm envisioning right now is more like western pennsylvania but i feel like there's a lot of like alcoholics from these kind of poor fuck yeah there uh, are dude yeah uh, oh, uh, totally rust belt towns right and when you see that as a kid like i you know i grew up where i grew up there's a lot bunch of drunks and wife beaters yep, yep. and dudes going in and out of jail and they just they look miserable at all times right and so you're saying that like the misery is not driven by the alcoholism it's like you know, the alcohol right i, I don't I, know I, it's it's kind of like it seems to wrap around a lot because that's the other thing is like yeah growing up there it's like those are not people who are interested in micro brews like those are people who are knocking back like you know a half a case of jenny or something but aren't they like isn't it coming from a place of like i one of the things i love most about drinking and I'll say it again, I love drinking. And I'm, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> is that, it, it's a release. Like it, it, I yeah. take a break from myself, which is all I want out of life anyway, is to fucking get away from myself. So maybe I'm getting back to the alcoholic part. <laughs> right. But no, but I think it's also like th- th- there's also just like, a, you know, this and just like, you know, everything is like, you know, you're not an alcoholic because you have all this other stuff that you're doing. And then alcohol is not only delicious and wonderful, but like this other thing. Well, but then that, you know, when I'm, you know, 23 hours a day when I'm beating myself up and like really shitting on myself for how well I believe things are not going, I, it, a part of my mind pretty quickly associates it with alcohol. Like, oh, maybe if I wasn't a fucking drunk, like, shit would be right, but better. I, I think given the, 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 the scope of, you know, typical pot- potential alcoholics, like, you know, you and your life yeah. here in this place is very different from the, the bleakness of, like, you right. know, post-industrial working-class Pennsylvania. For- Did you, you've seen The Deer Hunter, obviously. Oh, fuck yeah. I, just I want- mean, I, like, grew up with that. Yeah. Yeah. My high school gets the first day of hunting season off as a holiday. Really? Because everyone, like, literally, there would be nobody there. Right, and I was I was talking to my students about this the other day. My house, you know, my parents are college professors and we're Quaker, so we don't have guns. I cannot think of another house of any friend of mine growing up that did not have a gun, at least a gun. And actually, I'm pretty sure plural. Are you describing responsible gun owners? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. If the zombie apocalypse happens, I know exactly where the fuck I'm going <laughs> because, like, you know, one of my best friends who lived across the street, like his dad ran the local sportsman's club which had like a skeet shooting range and like they've got like a shotgun shell reloading machine in their basement right like because you know they didn't want to pollute 
Uh-huh. So, so it's literally chunk and it's just spitting out new recycled shotgun cartridges. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, as, like, a down-home... <laughs> Down home liberal boy, like, right? I, I have to be like, fuck guns, fuck all guns. You know, they should all be taken away. But the I grew up around the responsible ones. Yeah, more uh, authentic part of myself really loves guns. I don't really love guns. Like I've never fired a gun. I always really? stayed. I always not a real one. Right. Air rifles and blah 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 blah. Right. But I grew up around them so much and saw so many totally responsible. So like you know that kid whose dad owns a sportsman's club. There have got to be well over a hundred guns in that house. That you know, like every once in a while, we'd Jesus be like playing hide and seek, and like you open the closet, and it's like, oh right, there's like an assault rifle and fifteen pist- pistols on the back wall of this closet. It's like, horrifying, and they're like totally responsible people. We never, like, those were not toys. Nobody ever touched anything. Everybody was totally responsible. Locked up safeties. You can't actually get on this. Like you couldn't take them off the wall without some like doing the shit right. Right. You know. Yeah, it's a different world. It's a different world. You know, and then everyone else, it was like, you know, there's two hunting rifles in the garage. Yeah. You know, and it was like, because even, yeah, Charlie Evans. Yeah. He owns a hunting rifle. Well, he's from where you're from, too. Same right? town. You guys knew each other growing up. Since kindergarten. Wait, so your parents were practicing Quakers? My parents are both Buddhist. Right. And when I was a little kid and my brother was like just born, they figured we should do some sort of organized-ish, religion-ish thing. And they were like, well, Quakerism and Buddhism are essentially the same thing. They it's are. Just, it's just there's Jesus in one, kind of. Right. So we just so we started going to like Quaker meeting. What was that like? I've always been fascinated by it was, Quakers. It was awesome. It is awesome, right? Totally awesome. Yeah. My, it's, bro- it's my all... brother is like very Quaker. He went to like divinity school for a year, but then he like dropped out because he thought everybody was full of shit. And like... Yeah. I mean, the fundamentals of Quakerism are like Buddhism, which is... Totally. Everything is internal. There's no point in... Ex- yeah. There's, if God is internal, there's no point in externalizing anything. Yeah. So like Quaker meeting is like you get together and you sit in silence and you reflect on the nature of God and or the cosmos if those are different things, which they might not be. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. a Quaker meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And ours had a lot of folk singing because the family that kind of ran the meeting were big like Joni Mitchell... Uh, Cat Stevens fans. That makes sense. Yeah. So your parents are hippies. Yeah, and I didn't really figure that out until terrifyingly recently. Right. Because they didn't come off as hippies because of where we live. Like, so they were very not hippies in that town. Yeah, professionals. Because they didn't want to seem. But now it's just like, oh shit! Like they were in grad school in the fucking late '60s in Syracuse. Like, like anti-war movement. Oh, totally. And like you know, living in their loft apartment and smoking weed and like playing sitar music, like on you know buying sitars and like you know writing poetry with their friends. And yeah, like, yeah. They were like the deepest, but good hippies. It sounds they like. were like, yeah, not they, dark hippies. No, yeah, dark. Do you? <laughs> My mom's older sister, I think, is a dark hippie. A dark hippie. Yeah, dark hippies fucking freak me out, especially yeah. the ones who've taken a lot of psychedelic drugs. Because it, it does something to... Yeah, but she's not a drug... She's just like a dark human who's also a hippie. Right. And it's... it's. She's in denial. It's, oh, I don't know what... It's just, whoa, that is not a stable human and, you know... Yeah. Yeah. Wait, so you're like really into being from Pennsylvania if your album titles uh, are any indication. <laughs> am, yeah. Am I really into being... <laughs> sure. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's quite the right way to right. put it, but uh, uh, I'm not not into being from Pennsylvania. Um uh, there's a lot of things about that place that I really like, and then there's a lot of things about that place that are like you know terrifying and complicated and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I'm I'm unabashedly from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania went for for him in the last election, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Pennsylvania's. You, you, did you see that coming? You probably saw that coming, right? I I was not surprised. Right. And the because th- the thing about Pennsylvania and everyone like you know talks about this where it's like you've got Philadelphia on the east side and Pittsburgh on the west side and right. then it's basically Alabama in between. Exactly. Like, like you know rural Pennsylvania culturally is you know no different from Indiana or like the Deep South mm-hmm. in terms of you know like in my high school when I was probably about a I guess when I was a senior, there was, to my knowledge, and at least not, within grades 9 through 12, there was not a single non-white person. Right. Like, zero. Right. You know, and I think there was a Vietnamese kid who was in, like, eighth grade at that point. So that's still not in high school, but that's... And like, we're talking about the early to mid-90s? Mid mid to late 90s. Yeah. I, yeah, I graduated in 97. So it's okay. like, you know, 93 to 97. Right. Like zero. Not, not that long ago. Not that long ago, zero non-white people. Yeah. But, you know, in the class ahead of me, there was like one African-American kid. Who probably couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. I, I guess. She was really cool. Took a theater class with her. <laughs> she was, you know, that was a cool person. She seemed okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the time, it also was just like, you know, you're kind of oblivious. But, you to- know, that, that's for, I mean, so I grew up where I grew up. It's literally 45 miles north of here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Culturally, a universal yep, way. Yep. And when I was in elementary school growing up, there was one black kid in our whole school. Right. One black kid. Yep. And I think he was the only non-white person in my whole school. Yeah. And it, you don't have that without you. You, you don't. You're not that close to New York City and have it be that way without some aspect of racial intimidation and 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 violence and something else. Like it's a dark fucking scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I. Yeah. I. I I don't know that all that much, ref, you know, no one was particularly reflecting on that. And, you know, like stuff didn't come up on like a day-to-day basis in high school. And like, since my, my parents are New Yorkers. Yeah. And so coming in here and especially like, you know, meeting my dad's friends from high school who are all different ethnicities and the whole, yeah, yeah, spending yeah. lots of time here, I, you know, more so than I think other people I grew up with out there, I had a lot more perspective on the rest of the world. Right. Um, Did you go to summer camp growing up? A Quaker summer camp, yeah. Really? <laughs> Actually, on 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 a farm in the Poconos, which is also where the Quaker meeting was. So yeah. I spent a lot of time there. And actually, my brother and his wife uh, are like living on that farm right now. So what was it like? It sounds like a was like a kibbutz or something. Uh, no, it's way less way less crazy. So it's this this you know Quaker family bought this farm, and it the the farm does two things where the 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 agricultural product it produces is maple syrup. It's a maple syrup farm. Uh So the vast majority of the acreage is just forest with maple trees that, you know, right now, this minute, my brother and his wife are like tapping maple trees and like boiling syrup. Right. Then that stops come March. And then they, you know, built some kind of cabins and, you know, and then in the summertime, it's a summer camp, mostly for, you know, kind of geared towards urban kids to come out and like do summer camp on a farm. So yeah. there's like cows and goats and sheep yeah. and pigs and stuff, but not for like food. It's just animals for the kids to in the create summer. the environment for right. these people where they right. can see. So it'll be a, it's a maple syrup farm in the, you know, now winter, spring, and then in the summer, it's a summer camp. Wow. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, so I spent obviously lots of time there. Like that was where we would go in the winter time. That's where Quaker meeting was held. And then in the summer, since you couldn't hold the meeting there, we would go to other, uh, you know, other people's houses would kind of like host the Quaker meeting in the area. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And be like a potluck. And it was all, I mean, Quakerism is pretty, pretty mellow. People, surprise, I, I don't, th- surprisingly few people, I think, know anything about Quakerism other than like the oatmeal box. 
The oatmeal box oatmeal is a good place. Yeah, good, 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 good place to start. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but I, I mean, the modern prison system, or the idea for the modern prison system, right. which is vastly different from yeah. what the actuality of it yeah. is, was a Quaker idea. Yeah, Foucault has a lot to say about that. <laughs> I mean, the idea was not punishment. It was no, no. go it, somewhere where it's quiet and and focus on how the fuck right, you got to this. Right, and the and the and the Quaker you know thing that led them there was like the idea of like you know punitive justice and especially corporal punishment in any sense being like you know bad Mm -hmm, (laughs) in mm -hmm. all kinds of moralistic and like you know kind of jesus derived ways and they were just like you know all of that is not okay rather than physical violence because of the whole quaker nonviolent thing if you're gonna have some kind of like retribution justice system it should be in the form of like non-bodily harm incarceration yeah where then you have time to reflect and blah 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 blah. and then of course we know where that idea actually led to yeah you know the the modern prison system is not what the quakers intended but you know you get into a lot of uh gray area between you know they didn't really think through whether or not what they were proposing was actually going to be better or worse than what they were replacing on like a large scale mm-hmm. kind, you know i mean i, I could do you think they saw capitalism going as far awry as it had I mean, this was happening so long you know it's yeah. going to be in like the 17 and 16 so it wasn't even an idea right right and so it was just like their whole goal from like the quaker nonviolent perspective was you know putting people in barracks and like you know 40 lashes as a punishment and like you know death penalty those yeah. are all like morally reprehensible and barbaric, because of yeah. and barbaric because of the violence and incarceration is not violent whereas you know now when you look at the way the prison system works that's not really it's, debatable oh this, it's it, morally right. reprehensible right, right it's meant to strip people of humanity right and you know foucault's discipline and punish book talks a lot about that kind of like philosophically and like the you know, actually thinking through the downstream. But yeah, anyway, the Quakers were big on that. But yeah. yeah, I mean, the whole Quaker thing is just, you know, basically, if everything is internal, then externalizing things is is dumb. And if everyone is on some level divine, whatever that means, then violence is inherently evil all the time and discuss. Pretty good shit. It's pretty simple and pretty, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my, my hippie Buddhist parents did not have any trouble kind of adapting, adapting right. to that. Yeah. Wait, so you met Charlie Evans when you were in kindergarten? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we, we probably met at preschool, um, but because of our parents' work schedules, I was in the AM preschool and he was in the PM preschool, so we didn't really hang at that point. Right, but did you guys start playing jazz together as friends? Yeah. Um, we, you know, like we started in band in elementary school and that was not like playing jazz, but right. yeah, you know, we were both in like elementary school band. I played trombone at that point. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, by high school we were both into it and then we both simultaneously, my dad is a huge jazz guy, but, yeah. but I didn't really absorb that until we started playing in, you know, super cheesy jazz stage band when we were in like seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And then, you know, some happenstance stuff where when we were sophomores in high school, our drum corps international trained band director took a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. And the guy that he brought in to replace him was a uh, had been in the Air Force big band, the you know airmen of note or whatever. Right. And he was like a baritone sax player in like big bands. And so he, you know, taught at the school for like a year and shifted the focus away from what had been really strong before, which was like the marching band and the jazz, and the concert band, and put all his energy into the jazz band. And so there was me and Charlie and a drummer named Eli Hlidzik, 
who mm-hmm. all just got like way into it. Uh, and then, were you enjoying listening to that stuff as well? Listening not yet. To jazz uh, music? I mean, it was on on in my house all the time. And your dad is one of these people who appreciates the whole arc of the history. Or yes, but but are... his his wheelhouse is you know classic fifties and sixties blue note stuff. Great through the avant garde. So he's into like the AACM. And oh yeah. yeah. Cecil so and... so the stuff that would be played was like Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Lots of Cecil Taylor. Lots of Ornette. Lots of tons of Train. Tons of Miles. This is like his. Yeah. I don't know, man. And so, like heaven. Right, so that was just on all the time, and I totally took it for granted. Right. And uh, so I didn't start playing until this, you know, band director kind of made jazz band more of a thing, and I also started playing bass around that time. Upright. Um, electric. Yeah. Electric. And then Pennsylvania used to, but because of stupid Pennsylvania politics, they got rid of it, have this summer program called the Governor's School for the Arts. Uh-huh. And so that same year, this kid who was two years ahead of us, a trumpet player, had gone to that program, which is like free if you get into it, and it's pretty small and so he came back and one of the requirements of that program was you have to do like a community give back you know it, since the state paid for you to go to this place for free you need to like do projects to kind of bring arts back to your community and this guy's project was he put together a quintet that was charlie evans on saxophone and me on bass and our friend eli on drums and then maya roth who's actually now a principal in Brooklyn of a charter school now. Okay. And this guy on trumpet. And like that was this quintet. And, you know, we played like, you know, Maiden Voyage and Uh Work Song and like did some concerts at like, you know, retirement homes and stuff like that. And that was like his project. And that was like the first small group jazz playing. So then that was all the same year. So then the following year, I started playing upright and auditioned for that summer program along with Charlie and the drummer. And all three of us wound up getting in. And so we all went and spent that summer together at this super intense arts camp which is also the one that I went back and taught at where I was drinking the coffee and had the heart what palpitations. Camp was it? So it was Pennsylvania Governor School for oh, the Oh, right, arts. right, right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, so all of that was kind of like the, the high school getting into it thing. <laughs> but the, the kind of like, I didn't realize until college just like how much of the history or whatever you want to say was just like already, you know, wired into my brain by sure. my dad. Because it's the kind of thing where like, uh, my dad's kind of like a fairly quiet guy. He's a poet, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And when he would kind of tell stories or whatever, it was like jazz anecdotes, mm-hmm. you know? So he'd be like, you know, telling me the story of like, you know, Lee Morgan getting shot or telling right. the story of like Wayne joining the Miles Band or telling yeah, yeah, the yeah. story of like Bill Evans joining the Miles Band. These are or, all like famous tales within right. jazz. And this is just what, you know... Dad would just like, there'd be a record playing, and my dad would be like, Yeah, so on this record, this is, you know, the first one after Wayne joined the Miles Band, and blah, blah, blah you know, like, da 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 da. And I'd be like, Oh, yeah, cool. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm 12. I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, but like all that kind of sunk in. And then, kind of, as I got older, I realized, you know, how many, like, how much of the canon I already really, really knew. Mm-hmm. Just that, you know, I'd be at school, and, you know, some professor would play some piece as an example of something. I was like, Oh, yeah, I know this. You know, and I, right. could, and, I, and could rattle off the personnel and like the small biography of everybody on it, like you yeah, know, just from having like absorbed it. It's weird, man. I'm I'm 37, uh-huh. and it's in the last couple of years I find myself like able to do that. I've never considered myself a jazz person, uh-huh. but like I hear shit and I'm able like 
I mean, I don't know where this stuff came from. Somehow along the way, it began like sinking its way in. And I will literally, I'll be somewhere. And so I'm like, you know, Sonos Jazz Station is on. And like tune after tune after tune. I can call the tune. I yep. can call the band. And yep. then the guy's in the band. And if I don't know who it is, I can listen and say, oh, that's not, you know, that's Jerry Mulligan. That's Jerry Mulligan. You know, or whatever. Yep. yep. <laughs> so my dad and his best friend from high school, uh, who wound up settling in New Mexico, my whole childhood would exchange blindfold test cassette tapes in the oh, mail. Man. And so this was some, some shit that I, now I'm like, man, I should do that. So, you know, every couple of months, a package would show up and there'd be a cassette that was like unlabeled and the way they would do it. And, you know, this would be like on a weekend when I was running around playing soccer or whatever. And so like dad would sit down on the couch and put this cassette into the thing and put on headphones and you'd be listening to it on headphones and then next to him on the couch was a tape recorder and so he'd be like listening to this blindfold test and then recording his like responses onto the tape recorder so every once in a while i'd walk in while he's doing this and dad's like you know sitting there like with the headphones on and then he like you know presses record on the thing he's like all right so that's definitely monk on piano so this is probably that you know (laughs) session from 50 whatever when you know he plays on one tune with the miles band and then he gets up from the piano and then it's horace silver and blah 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 blah. and so it was like that and i remember that one of the running jokes between them was like the one piano player neither one of them ever got was Ray Bryant. Huh. Just because he's like just, you know, well enough recorded that he's like a canonized guy, right. but he doesn't really have like a quirky style. Right. So like, you know, over and over again over the years, to be like, man, who is this on piano? Like, you know, it yeah. kind of sounds like Wynton Kelly, but it's not Wynton Kelly. And it kind of sounds like, you know, da 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 It's like, cool. ah. And so it turned into this thing where they would be like, Ray fucking Bryant. <laughs> and so apparently there was one, you know, like when early in high school, like his friend made a blindfold test where Ray Bryant was the piano player on every track. That's and like the, the title was Ray fucking Bryant. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and so it was all these obscure sessions that Ray Bryant had played on. And like, he was the thread. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hey, man, I, uh, I, I just, I never really wanted to, or thought of myself as a jazz person or wanted to be a jazz person, but I, I, I'm maybe saying the exact same thing I just said a second ago, but I'm now appreciating it more and more as I have a broader understanding of the history and of you know the individual characters and right. and the crazy stories, but also like you know if you ever talk to someone like Anthony Coleman, I remember he was telling me this story. Or he was telling me that when he was in high school, he was really in to jazz records. Um, I think from like what we was like nineteen forty six, okay. where the first stirrings of bebop you can begin to hear the way, and it's like, oh yeah, once you start listening for these kinds of things, like it's just an endless box mm-hmm. of. Yep. Uh, of things to listen for hearing yeah. the way like you know tony williams what he does on the snare drum and the way herbie's you know playing against right, it and then it's everything like, that came after that and like you know how everyone starts doing it right yep, yeah yep. oh yeah yeah and i mean some of my favorite stuff to listen to which i guess like you know the the you know whenever i'm having a conversation the, where this comes up i'm like oh yeah it's like listening to 1955 train yeah where where it's like or 50 55 56 where it's right. like you we know where this is going because <laughs> we've heard the whole thing. Yeah. But he's not, he's not there yet. He's, you know, it's like there's these little embryonic uh-huh. cells of like, okay, that thing that he just did right there, like those six notes are going to be some crazy shit in like four years. Yeah. But like that idea probably hasn't occurred to him yet. Right. And so I love listening for that stuff where it's like, 
you know, moments in people's careers where now we can step back and look at their entire career from beginning to end and see the whole thing, but that's not how life actually works. And so for that human, whoever they were, um, you know, there are going to be these moments where, you know, they have some epiphany or they make some change or they form a new band or something drastically affects their music. And then we know where that winds up going, yeah. you know, um, but then kind of listening to what was before that and hearing the embryonic stages of like, you know, maybe that person wasn't even aware that that was going to be their thing at this point, uh -huh. you know, and like, that's the stuff that I really, really like, or, you know, listening to Miles in the early fifties, mm -hmm. you know, when he's, he's not trying to be Dizzy Gillespie anymore and it's post, post birth of the cool and he's doing the space thing, but he's not really doing the space right. thing, you know, and then every once in a while he'll take a solo and there'll be like a couple extra beats of rest and it's like, that's going to be the thing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> right. It's so good when you start – but there's another side of that, which is I would say the sax player in the last, like, five, ten years that I listen to far and away more than anyone is Lester Young. Okay. Yep. And I, I think I've heard pretty much every recording that exists because there aren't that many, really. There aren't that many, really. And when you start hearing – and this is, like, one of the most heartbreaking aspects of that music to me is the stuff towards the end where you hear him playing licks. Yep that you can hear 15 years, 20 years earlier, and you, you they don't sound good. Right. Like he doesn't have They don't have sound like someone trying. They don't sound like someone who... Right. Well, or it's a, it's a different kind of trying. Like the, it's a different the, kind of trying. The thing that's happening, I mean, because Lester's life gets dark there. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I, I know exactly the stuff you mean, and it's, that's yeah, hard to listen to. You know, just because, it, yeah, it's like, it's the opposite. You know, yeah. you knew what this used to be. Yeah. And now it's turned into this other thing. And, and, and it's very different from listening to something like, I don't know, Dizzy Gillespie in the 80s or like, right. you know, Eldridge when he's old, where it's like, oh, right, this guy used to be able to like play insane, shreddy, absolutely bonkers stuff. Yeah. And now he's old and he doesn't have the chops and he's like, you know, just going for something else. Mm -hmm. Or it's a shadow of what it once was, but he's like... He doesn't care, and he's like, you know, doing the gig because that's what he does. Mm -hmm. The Lester thing's not that. I mean, it's just like the post World War II Lester thing. Like, you know, it's like he never, never fully came back after that. You've listened to those tapes, right? The recordings, the interviews. Yeah, yeah, <sighs> yeah. Hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, because I, I, you know, there is that part of me, you know, that clearly he was, you know, uh, a phenomenal technician of of the sax. But you don't make the kind of music that he made. You don't play that without just being this like really beautiful spirit and who, who's in touch with like, some this ability to be to, to offer that kind of expressivity. There's something very beautiful there. And yeah. To hear it get you know well, beaten think, down like that is yeah. And I think that. The, you know, now interesting thing about that, interesting is not the right word, because the whole thing's really tragic, but it's like, you know, if all of us as musicians and artists are, you know, trying to, like, be in touch with whatever that thing is and trying to, you know, probe and meaningful and, yeah, you know, all the stuff that great artists do, um, it's powerful when you recognize th how potentially ephemeral that is. You know mm. what I mean? That, like, yeah, yeah. that, you know, great art doesn't triumph over all. And, like, just because you're totally in touch with something doesn't mean that, like, everything can't fall apart. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that, like, okay, yeah, everything will be fine with for this person because they've got 
music. You know what I mean? Like, unless there's one of those examples, you know, from what I know, and obviously, like, you know, there isn't that much recorded and sources and who knows exactly what's going on. But, like, I, I just, like, him coming out of the army in World War II and, like, the, you know, dishonorable discharge and just, like, mm-hmm. he it, something broke, it seems. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I'm misconstruing that or projecting or who knows what, but it's just, like... That can happen, you yeah. know, and I think that that's so often in everything, classical music, pop music, jazz, whatever you want to do, we have this idea of, you know, the great, you know, this some hero myth stuff yeah. where, you know, you look at, you know, and your examples are people like Miles or Sonny Rollins or whatever, who have these like long, long careers and it's constantly searching and they're constantly doing their Wayne Shorter, perfect example, yeah. right? Yeah, highs just like and lows. Highs and lows, yeah. but like, man, they're searching and they're constantly finding new things and it's this like, you know, overarching phenomenal thing. And then you get somebody like Gigi Grice, right. who makes absolutely amazing music and then one day he wakes up and he's like, you know what? Fuck this. Like, the, the the economics of it is totally exploitative and, like, the whole thing is dark and I'm going to go be, like, a science teacher in the Bronx. Right. And that's what he did. And, you know, he lived to be really old and he, like, taught high school for decades and just, just um, buy. Like, huh. I do not need this. Right. You know, and I think that, like, those examples are just as important as the, you know, Wayne Shorters. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's- well, I mean, the thing with, you know, the, the history, especially of recorded jazz music, is that, one, it's not like classical music in that, like, if, you, if you're, you know, like, you know, let's say you're a Bartok scholar. Like, you will never have access to Bartok. Right. And what his ideas, you know, were from, you know, from the first person. Right. And with jazz, you can you can actually record a jazz. You can listen to the people articulate their ideas better than anyone else is ever going to do it because they're their ideas, right? You know, right? Um, and it, the, the 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 this biographical nature is never lost on me. And it's I I think you know one of my other favorite all time jazz musicians whose music you know I continue to go back to is Chet Baker. Mm-hmm. Again, a figure who you know had a pretty troubling life. Oh, that's, yeah. You know, to put it mild. <laughs> <Pretty> mild, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it informs, you know, what I'm listening to. And a lot of what I'm, you know, honestly, even sitting here talking to another person, I'm always trying to figure out, like, to hear about other people's struggles right. so I can better understand my own. Right, right. Um, and there's this amazing, with jazz, you know, at the end of the day, if I really am battling some demon and I'm really looking for help somewhere, mm-hmm. I'm going to listen to a Coltrane solo. Oh, me too. It's the most beautiful sound. Yep on earth and it's gonna be maybe enough to like pull me enough out of the darkness right but that being said <laughs> right <laughs> most of the time i'm kind of like you know even pop music you know i went one week i went to go see brian wilson play three times in one week whoa and you look in that man's eyes and there is just you know there there is there is uh, an ocean of sorrow waiting to be smashed open <laughs> and he's barely holding it back right right yeah, that that is a heavy person. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So wait, why did you go to Oberlin? Because I feel like Oberlin produces. You went to Oberlin. Right? I went to Oberlin. Yeah, like a a pretty good brand of weirdo. It, uh, yes, historically, so uh, many I, strange, I wonderful cannot, musicians. Yeah, I cannot speak for it right now, but uh, I feel very fortunate to have gone there when I did, and uh, you know, I just kind of. Got done with high school and wanted to go someplace. I still, because I hadn't been really serious about playing jazz until pretty late. Uh Um, So I wasn't totally sure I was going to go to music school. So I applied to some music schools, but only ones that also had colleges attached to them. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and wound up going to Oberlin because it you know fit the bill. But I I did the double degree thing there. Like I got a biology degree at the oh, same wow. time I did the music thing because you can do anyway. Um, but yeah, so while I was there, that was like kind of the tail end of the career of uh, this professor named Wendell Logan, who founded the jazz program there, and he was kind of. Uh, you know, peripheral associate, or at least, you know, friendly with a lot of the AACM people, um, a lot of, you know, Muhal and mm-hmm. I remember Oliver Lake coming out and uh, Leroy Jenkins and people, those are the people he was bringing out to do master classes and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And when he started that program, which would have been in like the early 80s, and like, you know, the first people to graduate from there were people like Jeff Lederer and like Michael Mossman and Ned Rothenberg, like mm-hmm. that crew and you know there was no building there was no like support from the administration for this thing it was very like you know we're gonna do this and so all the way up until i was there the jazz department was housed in like an abandoned gym (laughs) on like the edge of campus right that like the doors didn't lock like they would lock the doors but if you just like pulled really hard it opened you're like here's a taste of your career as a jazz musician (laughs) exactly (laughs) and 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 i remember wendell being like yeah you know like we like it like this you know it's like you just leave us alone so we can do our thing yeah and yeah he was very good at creating an environment in which people students felt comfortable doing lots of weird stuff and you know, he was, you know, required listening was all the AACM and Cecil and Ornette stuff. Like, you know, you, one of the requirements for graduation was like a history of the avant-garde class. And, you know, yeah. so that was all very clearly articulated top down that like, you know, this stuff is important. Um, and he passed away, you know, I guess probably almost 10 years ago mm-hmm. and had kind of had failing health in the early 2000s and wasn't around as much. And the program is drastically different now than it used to be. They got some massive grant, and now they've got a fancy state-of-the-art building. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that that's in and of itself a bad thing, but various other changes. Frequently expectations come with that kind of support. Yeah, and it's just it's so much more codified and regimented and like every place else. You know, whereas, but and when you were there, it was still under Wendell. It was still under Wendell. It was very small, shoestring kind of operation. Right, and all the teachers there were local Cleveland guys. Yeah, you know, and so that all changed while I was there because this is now late '90s when you know jazz school starts to become a thing, and the the larger conservatory realized that they would bring in more kids and therefore money by you know bringing in big name professors. So one by one, they kind of got rid of the local Cleveland guys and replaced them with, you know, A-list, you know, teachers to come in and only be there, you know, a couple times a semester to teach their lessons and blah, 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 blah. Right. So it was like a drastically different thing. And that was kind of like early 2000s that that mission was completed. That's where yeah. you really... I mean, I you know I don't know the answer to this. I didn't go to, to music school and I, you know, I, obviously I wasn't there at Oberlin with you, yeah, but yeah. I, I just feel like... When you show up there as a kid and, you know, you come across someone like Peter Evans, who's mm-hmm. another kid who – and I, I don't know what those early interactions were. But, like, here's this guy who's clearly – maybe he wasn't – it wasn't clear at the time. I don't know. You tell me. But, like, who's doing things with the trumpet that, like, no one's ever done and is, you know – there's just boom, right away. This guy is here to contribute something to music. Right. And t- to me, the people I know that have come out of Oberlin, whether it's, you know, him or you or Claire Chase or, or Josh Rubin, you know, just like – pretty substantial number of people who are making true contributions. Yeah, and I think that that 
up through you know the early 2000s and again like it could still be like that i don't think as much in the jazz program but maybe in other things like one of the reasons i think for that is the fact that oberlin is in the middle of nowhere yeah and so you're trapped and so you get like the college bubble effect which has all kinds of you know political and social ramifications whatever but as far as the musicians thing you don't have anything else to do but like come up with weird shit to do mm-hmm. and so i think that you know, in the case of, yeah, like all those people that were there at the same time with, you know, all the people from ICE, so Claire and Du Yun and Huang Ro and various other composers and uh, Rob Reich and, you know, on and on and on. Um, you have a lot of just like student driven randomness mm-hmm. where, you know, somebody wants to do something, so they do it, you know. Um, and I think that in institutions, that are larger and more bureaucratic and more kind of under control, you don't get that as much. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like now living in New York and like, you know, going to do rehearsals with people who teach at the new school or something, for instance, where, you know, like everything is very set and you've got, you know, very strictly regimented parameters for everything that you're doing mm-hmm. and you're in the middle of New York. So it's not like you can just like get random people together easily and do whatever weird thing. Uh, I think something about like being stuck in the middle of nowhere and also just kind of like the, the the latitude that that place allowed everybody kind of created a lot of, uh, you know, DIY It's stuff. a good combination of things. Right. The library there, I have to imagine, was pretty hip. Library was really hip. There was enough, like, you know, places to play. You know, like, you know, the jazz building not closing <laughs> because the door didn't lock was right. advantageous if you wanted to, like, you know, play music in the middle of the night and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, So I think all of that kind of contributed and... Yeah, there was, again, I don't know about now, but like there was this kind of very everyone pushing each other peer to peer kind of thing, which was really good. Did you start playing with Peter pretty early there? Yeah, I was two years ahead of Peter in school. And so I remember when Peter came out as a high school senior to do his audition uh, because he sat in on a rehearsal of like the combo I was in at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, as soon as he showed up as a freshman, we started playing together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the third year, we like, he and I and an opera singer girl lived together in a house off campus for like, that was like my, my last year of school and his third year of school. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was the two of us and this, you know, cr- crazy singer friend of ours. Uh, and yeah. And so we probably spent, spent an unhealthy amount of time together. Sam Kulik, the trombone player mm-hmm. was also a, a frequent resident of that house, although he did not technically live there. I always thought he and Peter were roommates back in college. I know they were roommates in New York. In New York, yes. uh, Yeah, I think after I moved out of that house, Sam moved in. Uh Because, you know, I I left school and Peter had one year left and Sam had two years left. And I think Sam, uh, my memory's getting busy there. So you went straight to New York from there? Yes. To Queens? To Queens. See, that's interesting to me because there's always been this like subset of... Of you guys that live out there in Queens, yeah, and 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 it seems like it's almost like it, when it, it makes me think of like like my wife's parents who are from Korea. Uh-huh. I mean, they're retired now, but you know they owned a dry cleaning business, right? As many as you do, Korean right. Americans have done, and, and you see that with all different groups. You know, one immigrant figures out how to do it, and they share that information with with their friends and family, and then you start seeing. It almost seems like. Were you that dry cleaner owner who showed up and said, "No, we moved to Queens"? <laughs> I, I I think kind of, and I don't I don't want to completely take credit for that. Right. But like, yeah, when wh- the only reason, so I moved to New York that summer of 2002 with my then girlfriend from Oberlin, another friend of hers. They were both painters, and Charlie Evans, who uh-huh. had gone to school in Philly. 
we were okay. all moved, so the four of us moved here, and we did like a reconnaissance trip in like the spring of 2002 to figure out like where in New York are we going to move to. Okay, and. We, you know, none of us had any money, and so we're like, okay, we're not going to live in Manhattan. And so we looked at Williamsburg, Greenpoint, and Astoria. And this is in, like, March 02. Mm -hmm. And at that point, like, you know, we took the G train and got off, you know, I guess, like, just north of McCarran Park, whatever it is, at the Nassau stop. Mm -hmm. And at that point, on, like, you know, this is on a weekend, so this is, like... Sunday morning or something. That place looked like a demilitarized zone. Like there was just like nothing there. And we're like, this is Williamsburg. We're like, fuck this. Yeah. So, so you know, and then we, we went further up to Greenpoint, and like again, there was like hardly anything there at that point. Yeah. We're just like, this isn't cool. And then we went up and got on the N train and got off at Ditmars, and like, you know, we're like, oh man, this this neighborhood's great. It's bustling. It's bustling. Let's move to Astoria. So. Yeah, we just randomly decided to move to Astoria, and so Charlie and I moved there, and then the following year, you know, Peter moved out, and then Sam moved out, and then, like, a whole kind of contingent of, of Oberlin people kind of <laughs> gravitated towards that neighborhood just very randomly. And then, you know, like, John Arabagon and Pete Brenler and yeah, a couple of people also moved to that neighborhood maybe a year later after I met John, uh-huh. and I don't know if I had anything to do with that or not, but... You know, I definitely met John before he moved there, and then, you know. But then I think after uh, Tom Blencart lost his place over on yep. East 4th Street, he went out there. Yep, T- Tom came out once uh, once once he left once he left Manhattan, and he lived right up the street, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, there's a whole, a whole, there was, you know, now, but, and now that part of Astoria is, you know, gentrifying rapidly. So you're not there anymore? Uh, oh, I'm in Sunnyside, so I'm not right. very far. Right, right, but, right. So yes, I am still there, and Charlie is still there, and, you know, so on and so forth. But, right. Uh that neighborhood did not change for the first decade. No, it didn't. Just kind of like living in New York and like seeing all this stuff. It was just like nothing about Astoria changed at all between 2002 and 2012. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, a a cool coffee shop went in. And then it was just like the- We always blame the cool coffee shop. Well, it's because it's it's a leading indicator. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just like the floodgates, bam, and now- you know, now but it, is it on the other end now where like cool coffee shop has been replaced by bank or CVS? Yes. That sucks. Yep. Yep. But, you know, there's still a lot of Astoria that's it, – it's like, you know, Astoria is like the cool up-and-coming neighborhood because now like, you know – It's always – man, Astoria has always been a very colorful right. and hilarious place to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I really like the, the whole area. I mean, yeah. you know, that whole – you know, Long Island City, Sunnyside, Astoria, that whole part of Queens is great. Um, you know, I have no intention of, of leaving, but it's like – in since 2002, the now we're going to tear stuff down and build bigger buildings and more stuff is coming in and there's like change is happening. Yeah, you know, perceptibly in a way that like you know the way New Yorkers talk about neighborhoods changing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it is like that around here where I moved to this neighborhood. I mean, further west of here, you know, right. more into like Lower East Side. Yeah. As people know it. Right. Into summer 2002. Right. And. You know, everyone was talking already, like, man, this changes, these changes, these changes, and you would see things, you know, come and go, and da 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 da. But it's at that point now where sort of like Williamsburg is, where it's like, oh, they officially choked it out, right? Like there ain't nothing left. Yeah, and that's that. That's the thing that is new and interesting, I think, about you know this, you know, two decade long New York gentrification thing. That just like watching it happen, and, you know, you read about stuff like this happening, blah blah blah. But just like, you know, so I'm sure, uh, just like the strip on the Bowery, uh-huh. where you know you used to have CBGBs and a bunch of other like Bowery venues, Poetry Club, Bowery Poetry Club, et cetera, et cetera. And just like seeing the pattern of, 
here's a rundown area, and so this is where you can afford to put the cool shit. Uh-huh. And so now it's a rundown area that has the cool shit, and now people want to live near the cool shit, and so and then people move in, and, and yeah. then the cool shit can no longer afford to be there, and it's gone. Yeah. You know, same thing happened in Williamsburg with Zebulon or whatever. Yeah. It's a et cetera, tale as old as time. Yeah. Right. And so that pattern is just like picking up speed. And I think it's and, – and for that matter, it's not a New York thing. I think it's like, you know, living now, it's like a, the first time in many decades of like re-urbanization in like this entire country where, you know, you travel a lot and any city you go to now is that same thing is happening. Yeah. You know, friends in Philadelphia, Philadelphia is changing really, really rapidly as like people move but back into the city. Consistently, it's all becoming very less colorful, I think. Like, I go to my sister lives in Athens, Georgia. You know, okay. I, I yep. lived there, you know, for a little bit, a thousand years ago. Yep. And maybe it's because I was young and, and my perception of things was different, but there was like a lot of stuff happening. Everything felt kind of central. There were record stores, bookstores, and clearly, you know, the economy of, of how we consume art and, and right. culture has changed, you know. Right. But none of that's there anymore. And the only bars, and you know, there's still bars there, but they're no longer like cool. You know, you could go to any bar at the time and just meet a cool, interesting person. And you yep. could talk about film, you could talk about music, you know, whatever. It's like, you know. So, one of my favorite films of the last couple of decades is the, the Nick Frost, Simon Pegg, At the World's End. Oh, I haven't seen it. So, you know, they're the guys that did Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. Uh-huh. This kind of, you know, British thing. And this is. One of the best films about being an adult I've ever seen, and you know this is of course like my own personal <laughs> nonsense thrown in there too. But like the premise of this is uh, Simon Pegg playing this character where you know it's like their last night of high school, like you know night before graduation, and they try to do this pub crawl at like all the local pubs. Uh-huh. And there's like twelve of them or whatever, and you know they're high school kids and they don't make it, and like you know it's they're watching the sun come up and they're totally wasted and da 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 and that's kind of like the high point of the Simon Pegg character's life. Like, is you know, nothing good happens to him. After that, all his friends go off and have, like, lives, and he's kind of, like, left behind. Mm-hmm. And so 20 years later, he decides to try and, you know, get all the friends back together again and, like, let's do this pub crawl, and we're going to actually do it, and, like, you know, reclaiming lost, blah, 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 blah. And they start going to these pubs, and all the pubs are now the same. And everyone in them is all the same. It's exactly what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that actually there's been an alien invasion and everyone's replaced. And it turns into this you know alien movie with like laser guns and stuff. Okay, great. Um, but it, like that's the point where it's right. just like watching all the stuff that you placed all this value in change into something unfamiliar in a way that's like in a in 21st century kind of way very generic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like how many Starbucks do we need or mm-hmm. whatever. Where it's like the individual local stuff does get forced out by like, you know, larger, you know, ma- more massive, more generic things. And like, you know, I'm not sure of any, you know, everyone complains about this and that's a thing, but I think that it is like a very interesting cultural shift when you have the combination of like reurbanization of like people moving back into cities on a large scale in this country, but then accompanied with, you know, banks replacing the cool coffee shop or whatever, you know, like just like uh, franchises and like, you know, the same thing everywhere mm-hmm. you go and kind mm-hmm. of the loss of, of local color uh, is like the other kind of like capitalist side of the equation. If like the demographic side is where people are moving, it's, you know, different just because uh, when the new infrastructure comes in, there's more profit to be made if some already established brand mm-hmm. s- sets up shop there, you know, which... 
I'm sure there will be a reckoning with, you know, in the not extraordinarily distant future, but, you know, it's not happening yeah. tomorrow, you know? <laughs> I mean, one thing I'm, I'm having trouble with, you know, it's like, I mean, honestly, the conversation about gentrification most of the time doesn't interest me in the same way that, you know, how digital music took over yep. physical, you know, just because it's, it's been had quite a few times. That being said, I do wonder, um, you know, when I get upset about the changing neighborhoods, you know, in this neighborhood, quite honestly, I, I have been very personally invested in for a number of years. You know, right. I helped open two businesses in the neighborhood. Yep. My wife and I bought our place. Like, I really, yeah. I'm in down there. with this neighborhood. Yeah. And so part of it is, you know, seeing seeing it get stripped of its color is, you know, there's this nostalgia that's upsetting to me. But I wonder how much of it is also the fact that where these things are now happening, whether it's Ridgewood or Bushwick, right. and how much of it is like, oh, I'm just like too old to give a fuck about going to Ridgewood and waiting till 1 a.m. for a show to start. Right. You know, right. And, and there was sort of like, it was kind of cool when it was less homogenous, even when it was art, gentrification was already, because yeah. you could walk around lower Manhattan, you could go play at the Bowery Poetry Club, you could go fucking downtown music gallery, you could do a bar, you right. could eat a really interesting restaurant, and... It was all right there. Yeah. Yeah, well... You kind of mentioned kind of like the, you know, the gentrification argument or conversation uh, as opposed to like the digital music conversation. Yeah. And one of the the books that had like the most intense effect on me is this book by Jacques Attali. Noise. Noise. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of idea of music as leading indicator is something I think about on an almost daily basis. And just, yeah, you know, if you look at what is happening over what has happened over the last like couple of decades in the music industry and if you subscribe to the atali theory that because music is this uh inherent abstraction that doesn't really tangibly exist when we're actually if we're actually talking about what music is it's just you know vibrations in the air right this pen is worth more than all of music right in that sense in that sense yeah. so it's like since it's so intangible but also so omnipresent the way people interact with it is uh kind of like a leading indicator for the way people economically interact with everything else. You know, I, the idea being that like whatever's going to happen happens to music first because it's the least tangible thing. Right. Whereas everything else kind of follows. And so looking at, you know, the collapse of the industry and like the concentration of, you know, going from the mid 20th century model of like, you know, every city having its own pop music sound. That's an exaggeration, but, you know, I mean, you have like yeah, you know, yeah, the Stax in Memphis yeah, and the yeah. Detroit sound and the Philly sound and blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah. And every city having like this kind of army of professional musicians who are doing recording dates and they're playing in like the pit bands of this, that, and the other thing. And there's a symphony orchestra in every medium sized city and blah, blah, blah. And this like massive kind of post industrial workforce. Mm -hmm. And just like over the last couple of decades, that disappearing and being replaced by technology, you know, that's been happening since the 90s, mm -hmm. you know, so like pushing 30 years. And now just in the last couple years, people are starting to come to terms with the fact that like technology is eventually going to replace like massive numbers of workers. And it's like, well, yeah, well, that's been happening in the music industry for like decades now. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's kind of what Atali is talking about, where it's mm -hmm. just like, well, yeah, you could have seen that back in 1990 when you know new technology allows a producer to like instead of hiring a bunch of studio musicians you just program a synth and then you have your pop singer sing over that and you've just replaced like nine workers and blah 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 blah. yeah, yeah. and so that idea of like s watching the music industry f 
or the, just like the music world to see where things are going is both very depressing and very hopeful. We're like, on the one hand, it's like, it's pretty clear that like, okay, right. Technology is going to like automate out of existence the vast majority of the workforce if that's the lesson you want to get from that like there that is but then on the other hand you get ridgewood where it's some random pocket of a handful of people who are like you know putting together stuff kind of outside of like the necessity of capital right you know and just like this is a thing that we feel is important therefore it's going to operate on this like micro scale and that kind of community building also kind of happened in like the 70s a bit when you had like, you know, the heavy metal scene or the punk rock scene or the hip hop scene where it's just like, you know, small groups of people, you know, creating a scene that doesn't really concern itself with like, you know, the economics of the situation first anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of like seems like we're at this transition point, or at least music seems to look like we're at this transition point of coming out of this economy based on you know mass employment and mass participation into this like much more fragmented but also much more um uh, viscerally close relationship to the things that we do which when people get all rosy in ted talks is essentially what they talk about like you know some the fucking star trek model where it's like okay so if the economy replaces all the jobs and everyone has all this time to sit around and read voltaire right. you know and it's like well on a certain level or you, go on tinder and swipe left and right exactly right. and so it's like and then you get brave new world right but <laughs> people have had this idea but i think it isn't so much as having the idea as like you know in the jacatawi sense like seeing it play out yeah. You know, it's like we're, you know, if if you're willing to look, there it is. And like that's that's where it's headed. And so on the one hand, it's like, well, the idea of this like, you know, m- massive global army of professional musicians all making a comfortable middle class living by like, you know, playing their instrument full time uh-huh. is gone the same way a middle class income in a factory can like, you know, raise a family and send the kids to college in Detroit in 1960. Right. Right. But on the flip side, like from the standpoint of the music or the art or the material that's being generated, you get like on the one hand, this like super homogenized artificially generated, whatever that the machines are going to do for us. But then you get these like small local creative, actually connected, actual community driven things, Mm -hmm. which is a whole lot easier to do when you don't have all these like, you know, massive institutions kind of monopolizing the space, you know, like Mm -hmm. during the 20th century when, you know, every city's got a symphony orchestra, you know, John Q person who's into music is going to go see the orchestra and they're not going to take the time to go see some weirdos do something in the coffee shop Mm -hmm. because you've got all these options. And now it's like people are going to be much more drawn to specific smaller communities that are then going to kind of like you know circles of people that are overlap like venn diagrams and you'll yeah, you'll, yeah. you'll get like you know i think the potential for really healthy local art making is looks like it's replacing the kind of like large scale industrial art producing that happened in the 20th century you know, all the way down to the fact that, like, you know, I'm looking at your CDs here. These like, are all nobody's, nobody's going to make a fucking CD anymore, you know, like, pretty soon. Like, computers don't even have CD drive. Like, people don't even have CD players anymore. I, I can't tell you how maddening that has been for me to accept that yep. I have a friend, and I've, you know, forgive me if I, you've heard me say this a hundred times already, who, you know, we've become friends in the last year. He's not a musician, and he was like, I want to check out some of your stuff. And I was like, man, I'm going to bring you a stack of discs. And he was like, I can't listen to them. And the the fact that the very thing that's preventing him, preventing me right. from sharing my stuff with him, right. is the object itself. Yeah, that's fucked up. Yep, 
Yeah, it is. And, but I've been having this conversation with a lot of people lately, including my dad, who's a you know massive collector. Yeah. That in a five hundred years, when people look back at the twentieth century, there's going to be just this little blip in which musicians went from primarily uh, making a living through live performance all the way up through the 1920s, uh-huh. then all of a sudden making objects became this economic driver, uh-huh. and that lasted about 100 years, yep. and then it disappeared, uh-huh. and now we're going back to the way you're going to make a living if you're going to make a living is by being like a traveling itinerant musician or someone who's like tapped into some like local funding source, you right. know, a la, you know, Bach working for, <laughs> you know, Prince Leopold of Anhalt or yeah. whatever. You know, so you'll still have your... Koch brothers funding the, you know, New York Phil. Right. So, like, there'll be some local rich person investing in whatever, and so that'll be – those jobs will exist. Uh, And then you'll have everyone else just, like, making the music they want to make and figuring out a way to do it that doesn't have anything to do with manufacturing objects. You know, and just, like, the idea of manufacturing objects that have sound on them is going to be, like, this weird historical anomaly that lasted about 100 years. Right. You know, which is, like, not a very long time. Not a long time at all. Yeah. But during that hundred years, what, that's like when all – I mean, I will say, you know, I mean, when I zoom out and I look at it in the grand scheme of things, like more important music happened in the 20th century than any other time in history. Which is like – which is a byproduct of the the the, the technology. But the I think like the thing that leads to that is just the fact that all of a sudden you had, you know, more musicians with more rapid access to more other musical information. Right? right. You can hear more stuff faster. And now like, you know, you sit on your computer and you can push a button and listen to all music ever. And – one of the things that's interesting, and this will be a field day for people in a century. I'm going to miss out on that, but oh well, unless I can upload our consciousness into a computer. But anyway, <laughs> the, the idea that like I think that reached a saturation point where if you're looking at that sweep of the last hundred years and like you know jazz, you know transforming into the swing era, transforming into rock and roll, transforming into you know uh, kind of soul into funk into hip hop, just like all that stuff happened with like increasing speed Mm -hmm. right you know you had like a solid couple of decades of jazz being the dominant thing in american popular music and then rock and roll and that's rock and roll and jazz for you know not quite two decades but it's like the 40s and the 50s and then rock and roll shows up in the 60s and then you hit like the late 60s and like one after another after another all these like new rapid developments and that's also like you know when people are really enjoying the economic and technological benefits of like post-world war ii technology right so everything's all over the place and then it like drops off as soon as the internet shows up where it's like you get to the late 90s like you know other than say grunge rock like and if that's a separate genre is debatable anyway Uh like no new genre Uh has showed up in the last almost 30 years after having this super rapid you know right if you go from 1965 to 1995 it's like all this stuff and then all of a sudden it stops but are are we mislabeling things or i mean like i don't know i mean just because like when you listen to or is it just much less consequential like reggaeton i think has not had the same impact that hip-hop had i think part of it is just like there's so much of it and so much of it is all so similar to everything else. You know, you get like, you know, talking to like high school kids now who listen to metal. And it's like, you know, they can list like 35 subgenres of metal. Sure. And, and it's like, but then you listen to it, it's all just metal. Right. You know, but like there's some 
aspect to this particular version that but makes it's it, kind of all about the same thing it's kind anyway. of all about the same Anger, thing dissonant chords and like musically it's all basically the same intensity, thing it's, yeah. right it's not like there's a metal band where like you know the instrumentation is like 15 glockenspiels or something right you know what i mean and so it's like as far as just like noticeably different genres right. where like any non-music nerd can tell the difference between a punk band and a metal band mm -hmm. right or between uh a jazz band and whatever right? right it's just like there are these like styles with vocabularies and parameters around them and i i find it really interesting that kind of as soon as the internet made access to everything possible everything kind of just bled into everything else and there hasn't been some like drastically different thing to show up since then in the way that like it's not surprising i mean there yeah but i mean that's what yeah. i mean it's like there's like this critical mass that got reached where it's like the technology was really good at making change happen for a while and then it stopped being yeah and i find that really really interesting where it's like you would expect the opposite but you know just like looking around really all we've had since the 90s has been just kind of like rearranging the same basic parts mm -hmm. into like slightly different, you know, chimeric combinations. Mm -hmm. But like, that's not new stuff, you know? And so having, you know, teaching high school for since like the early 2000s, I talked about that a lot. It's like, I used to be, you know, teaching class and be like, okay, so we got up to hip hop and whatever the new thing is, is happening somewhere right now. And we just haven't heard it yet. And I've been saying that for like 12 years, <laughs> you know? And it's just like, you, none of the stuff, you know, then, you know, at one point, like, you know, uh, the Skrillex and whatever that stuff oh, was. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like dubstep. And dubstep. And I was just like, but this just sounds like what Square Pusher was doing in, like, 1995. It sounds like a really dumb version Right, of it. but it's like, this is not new. Yeah. Or, you know, reggaeton. And then it's like, well, no, this is just, like, you know, the same rhythms from these other styles, just, right. like, done with a computer, like, really loud. And, like, right. they're making the bass drum loud, and it's in four now. Like, whatever. You know, to, right. you know to water down the polyrhythms, and we get that. You know, it's like... It's all just kind of like, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, as opposed to, you know... Prince. Prince. Or just, yeah, to, to use one example. Or even going before that, like the 60s, 70s thing, where it's just like, you know, the difference between the rock and roll of the 50s and the rock and roll of the late 60s. Right. In, just in terms of, like, sheer number of, like, drastically different things. Or jazz during the same period. Mm -hmm. Like, jazz in 1956 versus jazz in 1966. Right. You know, the speed different, of change different is... Different game. Totally different game. Yeah. You know, you go from Sonny Clark to Cecil Taylor. Yeah. You know, and like, that's huge. And and so, I, you know, it's it's not like human beings are any less creative, and it's not like anybody's naive enough to think that, like, everything has been done, because that's asinine and stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like... It is interesting that, like, for what the whole lot of reasons that probably aren't clear to us right now, because like we're in the we're in the dust and it hasn't settled, you know, like why are we not getting new, you know, new I mean, stuff? It's probably got something to do with what, uh, on some level, what people's expectations of music are, right? And then how does the person who's creating the music respond to that? Mm -hmm. And and when you just you know. It, it, I am sad to say that I firmly believe that people don't ask enough questions and, you know, will literally stand on a stage with an instrument in front of a group of people or in front of, you know, no people mm -hmm. um, and not question, you know, existentially what it is to be in that position and what their responsibility to that situation is. Right. On the other hand, people getting up in front of people not caring what's going on gave us punk rock. It's the best. Right. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> so it's just like there's this weird... 
Yeah, I think it's like, it's partly not, I mean, yeah, people not asking enough questions is always, has been a problem since there have been people, I'm sure. Uh But like, I think that's coupled, it's the, the, you know, the economics and the, well, the technology via the economics is like very different now than it ever has been before. Yeah. And so on the one hand, there's the like the anomaly of like recorded music on objects being replaced by who knows if it's an anomaly or not. The idea of like, you know, constant internet digital access to everything and just like the the omnipresence of music and the omnipresence of all music kind of like leading to this like just you know uh beyond homogenization it's just but like it's, it's also a- the way it's presented and this is i don't want to like oversimplify things but I, i'm i'm literally i didn't realize i was doing this until i like stopped and i looked at like my my, my bank account and all this other shit where i'm like i'm really transitioning or deciding whether i'm going to transition to how i you know as a as a lifelong media junkie right as someone who's been listening to shit since he was six years old right reading since he was five six years old you know watching as many movies as he could man you know it, it's i'm actually having to make a choice now of like oh, how many services am i going to subscribe to it and the truth of the matter is I've never felt further away from just being with the material. Yep. And the way it's coming to me right now, you know, through a spotty internet connection, mm-hmm. through, you know, streaming services that don't offer, you know, if, if the whole concept is like, hey, it's all right here, then why does Netflix and all these other things have such a shitty selection of really important work? Right. It's like if someone took that great work and just put it in a burlap sack and just dropped it on your front porch. Right. <laughs> Right. And it's not. It's not it, 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 the. the b- 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 I mean, obviously, there's a lot lost there. Yep. Um, I don't know. I'm unhappy with it. I mean. Yeah. Well, it, it, it it's a massive change. It's a massive change. I mean, are you still releasing music? I am still releasing music because you've been self-releasing since. I've been self-releasing since. Yeah. Uh, the only stuff that. I've put out that wasn't self-released were a couple of like I guess three live albums that were right. all on on labels that were not mine. Right, they got in touch with you and said, "Hey man, do a record." Right, right. and it was and those were always live records. Like yeah. I've never done like a studio record for another label. Yeah, um, but I very much am uh, assuming slash planning for the idea that I probably am not going to make CDs anymore after this year. You make LPs. If I make any object, it would be LPs, uh-huh. and then that's also like a question of economics, just because f- when you know my kind of recording career got going in like the early two thousands, uh, I was lucky enough that I would be able to like make a CD and then sell enough copies of that CD to make back all the money that I spent in it. So mm-hmm. it was not like a money losing proposition. And part of that was contingent on playing a lot of shows and bringing, you know, traveling with a lot of merch. Mm-hmm. Um, vinyl is a lot harder to travel oh, with. That's the worst. It's you know much I mean? harder to ship and much more expensive to ship. Exactly. So if, you know, the business model is like, you know, no one's buying objects online really. And you've got to, you know, sell a bunch of records to make your money back because they're mm-hmm. expensive. And that's fine. I mean, I'm a massive vinyl person. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, I have a problem. <laughs> I can admit it. Um, and so, but yeah, but if you're making those, the the possibility of me kind of like not losing lots and lots of money every time I make a record is like pretty, ma- like basically 
making a record turns into a money losing proposition at this point, which is very demoralizing. Which is very demoralizing. And so, like the last two or three, most other people do the killing CDs, like have not made back the money that I put into them. Just be, you know, between recording costs and promotion and mastering and manufacture and the whole deal, yeah, artist fees, the whole thing. When yeah. the whole thing, when the whole thing is said and done, you know, the, yeah, like I guess the last three have like you know not turned a profit. Mm-hmm. And it isn't so much that I care about turning a profit as it is that like I can't afford to just like lose money on on that scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the other thing was like you know my band has been like pretty prolific. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of records, and you know that made sense to do when I would be able to make the money back. But now it's like you know I I I. I financially can't afford to do that because there, you know, there is no monetary way that it makes sense mm-hmm. because people don't buy CDs the way they used to. Because CDs, you know, as an object, were kind of ideal for artists because they're small and cheap to travel with, mm-hmm. and so you know you can sell them and easily. Cheap to ship and cheap to ship, and so if if CDs are going to disappear, which they have, and vinyl is what replaces them. I really like that from like an audiophile perspective. Sure. But as far as me being able to like make a thing and sell it, I don't think that's feasible. Uh, certainly not on the scale to which I was, you know, maybe instead of putting out a record a year or give or take, which is what I've been doing, mm-hmm. it's going to be like, you know, many years between records just because, you know, I will need to like budget and save up and know that like, okay, I'm going to spend X thousands of dollars to make this. I'm not going to make that money back. But as someone who wants to make art and wants to make art on objects for other humans, then I'm willing to do that. And then that gets back to our kind of Jacques Attali conversation yeah. of, you know, the large scale economy is gone, but what you're left with are these like small pockets of people who really give a shit, which will produce really great art outside of like the economic spectrum. And that's like dark and like, well, but that seems to be the reality we're headed for. Whereas, you know, you can still, you know, you, people will always be able to make a living performing because the immediacy. Uh, that seems to be <laughs> slipping a bit too. Slipping, yeah. Well, it's yeah. because of the scale. Like, you yeah, know, yeah, if you yeah. think about like how many people were doing that for the last century, it's right. kind of insane. Yeah. But the idea of s- people getting to the point that they are, you know, virtuosic on their instrument and able to perform in a way that uh, is going to attract some audience. Yeah. You know, human beings like watching other pe- other human beings do stuff that they can't do. Right. Right, which is why sports are a thing. Right. There's a spectacle aspect. And I know that, like, as artists, we don't want to think about, like, the spectacle side of what we do. But on a certain level, that's, that's the thing that's never going away. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. if you are performing in the street and you're playing the shit out of your instrument, people are going to, like, gather around and watch. Like those idiots that play the baritone sax? And the like sub- the guy who dances around. Yeah. You know, but, like, but that's the thing. Like, that's, that's you're going to get an audience. Yeah. And, you know, like, I don't want to do that for right. whatever. But that guy does, so cool. Right. Great. Do your thing. And so, like, some version of that is always going to be around. Like, human beings like watching other being, human beings do stuff. Yeah, yeah, And so the idea of being able to go around and perform on, like, a much smaller scale with much smaller ensembles and blah, blah, blah. But if you take into account kind of presenting the music you're making in a way that's going to attract some audience, whatever that audience is, doesn't really matter. And there's lots of balkanization of audiences we can do. I don't, I don't see that going away because that's been around for 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 100,000 years, however long they've been people. You're going to have, like traveling musicians Mm -hmm. that's a thing Mm -hmm. always going to be a thing Mm -hmm. and you know when people look back on the history of civilization in another thousand years it's like well one of the through things is well there's always musicians and they're always playing yeah you know the live thing (laughs) right 
Uh, but yeah, the whole, you know, making objects for sale and having this like massive workforce of professional musicians making a living doesn't seem a historically precedented and be kind of like viable going forward. Right. And so it's like you're left with kind of professional musicians who find some way of using the spectacle aspect of music to generate a living, whether that means dancing around with a baritone saxophone or not. Great. And then you're also going to have people who are making art because they want to make art and, you know, fuck the economics. Yeah. Which I've had conversations, you know, my entire adult life about one of the things about creative music, the kind of stuff that, you know, we both do, uh, and how even though you go to all over the world, there's like lots of people doing all kinds of crazy stuff all over. But for some reason, American musicians are produce like a disproportionate amount of like really amazing gnarly shit. Mm-hmm. And on a certain level, I think that's attributable to like how much more difficult it is to like make a comfortable living doing that stuff here, as opposed to somewhere like the Netherlands, mm-hmm. right? Where, you know, lots, lots of, of support, government money, lots, lots of, of yeah. support, blah, blah, blah. And it does, on the one hand, that's great. And we should all get paid and it would be wonderful if we could all, you know, make a decent living and like, you know, occupy Wall Street and fuck the man. But on the other hand, there is something to be said for like the the artistic merit of people being so invested pun intended, in the thing that they're doing that, like, they're going to do it come hell or high water, even if there's no money, and that drive being so much more artistically motivated as opposed yeah. to how am I going to make a living. And I, so I agree so completely with that, And yeah. when I, but then I'm always like, is this my inner Trump talking? Is this, you know... I don't, I don't think it's that. I, think I don't think it is. I think there's, like, a reality to that. that it's just, yeah. like, if, if you don't have to do something, you relax a little bit. Yeah. Even if you even if you're being a creative musician, if you're not, you know, it, you know, it's like the fire fire in your belly stuff. Yeah. You know, where it's just like, you know, if you don't if you're doing something because of the the you know, like the the money thing versus if you're doing something because, you know, there's this fire in your belly and you're not going to be satisfied with yourself as a human being unless you do it, that's the the <laughs> The second one is the one that's going to generate the most intense stuff. And I yeah. remember you know, having conversations with Peter Evans about that, just about like the the conviction of doing the thing you want to do and not pausing for a second to think whether or not anybody else wants to hear it. Right. You know, like in that like total kind of like quote unquote artistic conviction. Right. And I think you get more of that in like places where there's less support because the value system shifts where it's just like if you know you have no financial reason to do this so the only reason to do it is because it's like a core element of of your humanness and that's going to create better art now that sucks economically and is you know maybe dark on like a larger civilization level i don't know but i think that there is some truth in that and as someone who does not make a living performing or being a, a you know a performing musician you know i'm a high school teacher um i'm very comfortable with that in that like i've made the music that i want to make my entire kind of like post-college life right as a high school teacher and you know that's what i've been doing since 2003 is that i mean not, i don't i feel like this is maybe like dumbing the conversation down a little bit but one thing I was curious about with you is, from what I can tell, primarily your musical output has been your band and the sort of universe around it, the record label. And, right. And you haven't been one of these guys, you know, on a million other people's tours, side manning. Right. 
And it was that because you said, okay, well, if I got to make some money, so I'll be a teacher. So, uh, no, um, my kind of uh, uh, the way I got to that point was uh, out at Oberlin when I was in in school. Oberlin's close enough to Cleveland that that's like a, a thing, and so starting in my my third year of school um i started getting calls to play jazz gigs in cleveland and i guess like you know in the late 90s right or right around 2000 cleveland had a fairly vibrant jazz scene like mm-hmm. there were like jazz clubs and enough gigs and it was a thing and so yeah like three years in a row there so like you know i did like that double degree thing which was like a five-year program so i was in school for five years so like the third fourth and fifth years of school um there were like you know times that would go by that i was working every night and not really being a college kid, which is fine. Um, and doing that, I was doing all kinds of stuff. Like I was playing in wedding bands and I was playing like jazz gigs in restaurants and I was playing, you know, concert, you know, like jazz mm-hmm. club gigs and, you know, working in people's bands and blah, 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 blah. And at the time I was kind of not really thinking about whether or not I liked it. I was just kind of doing it and it was fine and fun, I guess, but like not being very critical. And then I moved to New York, you know, in like May of 2002 and initially started doing like that same thing here. Mm -hmm. Just like going, you know, when I first got to town, going out all the time and playing jam sessions and meeting lots of people and then being a side man and playing gigs and and wedding bands and whatever else. And it got to be like that fall, so maybe like six months into it and I started to get really dark. Like I was not happy. I did not like the music I was playing just because of the, uh, the kind of like lowest common denominatorism of playing music like that mm-hmm. on the, for the most part, like you know, the jazz brunch, or the, the jazz brunch or whatever. We're like, you know, you're playing standards and you're doing just kind of like by out of necessity to get through the gig or whatever, you know, you're defaulting to like whatever the easiest thing that you know how to play is yeah. and everyone else around you is kind of doing the same thing or they have some crazy agenda and there's like, it's, it turns into this very weird mental space for me. Some people really like sure, that sure, and that's sure, fine. Sure. But I found myself being really unhappy. Um, and so I started substitute teaching like late that fall as a way of turning down gigs I didn't want to take. So rather than take this jazz brunch gig, that's going to make me miserable and I'm going to, you know, 50 bucks. Yeah. (laughs) Let's be generous. And it's a hundred bucks. Yeah. I was just like, okay, I can take this gig or I can like substitute teach that day and make 125 bucks and then I won't be dark. And doing the teaching thing was a lot more psychologically healthy for me. Like I would go and teach and I would not be dark. And then, you know, like a a permanent job opened up at this school and I definitely hesitated before taking it. So I was like, okay, if I take this job, I'm not going to play nearly the amount of music that I've been playing, but it's not like I'm going to stop playing. I'll just play in like the the projects that I really want to play in. Mm -hmm. And so I took the job and I basically stopped doing the sideman thing, except for like a handful of projects. One of them was John Lundbaum's big five chord band Mm -hmm. with John Robigon, um, handful of other things. And so for, you know, the last 15 years or so, there's, you know, my band and the stuff on my label that I'm participating in. And then in any given moment, there are three or four other ensembles that I play with in town and like, and that's it. And I feel really good about all of that. Yeah. And that's kind of put me in like what for me anyway is a very like healthy psychological space where it's like I'm able to make the music that I want to make on the terms that I want to make it, which is, you know, wonderful. 
and I don't feel that I'm like missing out on anything. And the, the teaching thing for me is very, very rewarding. And I really, you know, uh, enjoy teaching on like a day to day basis. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like enabled me to dodge the economic issue that we were talking about before, which is the whole, like, you know, making a living as a musician or not, or whatever that means. And, kind of since the beginning of mostly other people do the killing, I've been able to just kind of not have to worry about the money side of things. Cause I had the, the teaching job and then mm -hmm. I was just like, well, I'm just going to do the music I want to do. And you know, if people like it, great. And if they don't, I don't care. And you know, and there it is. And, and so I've, I, I've been kind of very lucky in a lot of very lucky in a lot of ways. Um, but also it, it was just like the, the calculus for me was, being a constantly working musician does not make me happy on a day-to-day -day basis given the, you know, the amount of stuff that you have to do to do that. And I just, you know, mm -hmm. that life did not yeah, work for me in the way that like teaching does work for me. Yeah. 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 But it, it's really like, I don't, it's, it's the trick as far as I'm concerned is to figure out what your balance is. Right. And you know, when you do this thing that a lot of us do where you're always kind of comparing yourself to other people, you know, I, I find it useful to stop and just kind of like take a realistic look at what you're comparing yourself to and really what the, look at what the reality of it is to see how useful it might be to you. You yeah. know, when you, I, I just, I, I remember I was playing a gig in, um, somewhere in Germany, I don't remember what city, but it was at, you know, it's rock club and um, this band that was playing on the same bill, I was aware of them, I'd met them maybe once or twice before, but they're, they're, they're these kind of people that they're based in Berlin, uh -huh. so they have like a pretty low overhead, right. and they tour constantly, constantly, squat to squat, rock club to rock club, mm -hmm. you know, some gigs probably pay 50 euro, some pay 300 euro, and right. just boom, boom, yep. boom. Tim yep. and his, his lady, they're together on and off stage. And I was just watching them in this sort of like green room and they just had this like routine dialed in where they pocketed a little bit of the, um, you know, the food that yep, was backstage back, food, yep. you know, so they had breakfast the next day yep. and I just thought, man, I, I, I don't want that. Right. Uh, that's you where know? I'm at too. And, and, and it's not, it says, it's, it says nothing of my creative ambitions. It says nothing of, of my commitment to, to making art, but you know, the part of me that is like rough on myself and beating myself up because I'm like, well, fuck, I got friends who are out making their honest-to-goodness living as a musician and they're touring and right. they're experiencing the, high, the thrills of that. They're scaling those heights. I think back to those sandwiches going into the pocket and... Right, and that's the thing is like for some people, you know, and like spending a lot of time with, you know, John Arabagan and Peter Evans, like one of the things about that is like for some people, those two guys included, it's like there's nothing else in the world that makes them happy other than playing music on their instrument. Yeah. And... Uh, I get that, and I think that's awesome. And they, you know, they and lots of other friends of ours have like, you know, found a way to make that happen. Uh, I'm not like that, for, for for starters, one. And so it's like thinking about, you know, the couple figuring out how to do it, and like, you know, having their routine and the whole thing. It's like if those are the kind of people that like, you know, this is the end all be all for your life, then that's what you have to do, and you do it. You know what I mean? But like, yeah, I'm, I guess, like you, where I look at that, and it isn't so much the the idea of that kind of like planning and, uh, you know, uh, striving, if you will, yeah. that bothers, it's not that it bothers me. It's like, I get that. And I think that's cool, but like, I'm not that. Right. And not because I don't want to like, you know, take some free food and save it for breakfast. It's like, yeah, fine. Okay. That makes sense. Sure. But it's like, for me, the other aspects of it are not enough. Meaning that like, I don't like 
traveling that much. And I don't, I like having like my own space to come back to and like, you know, being stable and in a, you know, in a place, an environment, an apartment, whatever, right. where, you know, I'm, I'm a collector. I have tons and tons of records. Like I like the feeling of like being in my place and like listening to music and reading books and kind of the aspects of civilization that are about stability and place. Yeah. A lot more than traveling. And I know that not everybody is like that. And so there are some people who are they travel really light and they, you know, can go from place to place and bring very little with them and don't need stuff and yada, yada, yada. And on a certain level, I'm a bit envious of that. And I'm, you know, sure. trying to cut back on my own stuff in lots of, lots of ways. But I recognize that for me, a big bunch of the, a big part of the human happiness equation is stability and stability just in terms of like rootedness. What's your birthday? September. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like just like a rootedness thing, and I kind of take that very seriously. And you know, even when most of the other people tours, like I burn out on tour pretty fast. Yeah. And the only reason that band toured as much as it did, tours as much as it does, although we don't do as much as we used to, is that the members of that group, we all kind of go out of our way to make it really fun all the time. Yeah. Because as you well know, you know, tours can get pretty bleak when you're waking up super early and not sleeping enough and standing around on a train platform at, you know, 7 a.m. to blah, blah, blah. Right. It's, it is a job and it is work. And I, some people really like that aspect of travel. Right. And even in like a vacation sense, I would much rather, if I'm going to take a vacation, go to a place and stay there for a month. Yep. And like be in, okay, I'm going to be in this place now and I'm going to just inhabit this place and that you know it's i guess a personality trait or whatever but some people have a much easier time being on the road than i do and i'm just you know when i got a few glimpses of that i'm just like yeah no this is not for me i'll take my teaching gig in my apartment and my stability and you know i'll make the art i want to make it's funny when i i have this vacation in my my wife got me into vacation. I never took a vacation until we started dating, and right. we haven't actually taken one in a while. But um, I have a vacation in mind, and it's probably not going to include her. Um, where I go to Thailand? No, I'm just kidding. No, where I uh, <laughs> no where I, uh, I I just want to go somewhere like France, uh-huh. where it rains a good enough amount, right? Where I can lay in bed for a week, drink wine read books and take two to three naps a day. Yeah. That sounds like heaven. Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And it's, so the thing about that is like, I got to be alone to do it. Right. Right. That sounds good. Yeah. I, yeah. I can totally relate. Yeah. yeah. That's spectacular. Fuck man. I think we did the damn thing. Cool. This was awesome. That was awesome. This was really good. Thank you, man. Damn. Yeah. Hell yeah. All right. That was Mappa Elliot. Did you guys enjoy that? I did. He's a good dude. He's a hard worker, uh, a deep thinker, and uh, a joy to talk to. I really enjoyed that a lot. And if you did, if you uh, are curious about what he's up to, if you're curious about mostly other people do the killing, go to mappaelliot.com. Uh, he's got a big, vast world of, of stuff, and it's all worth your time. Mappaelliot.com. That's it. We're done. We'll be back next week. Uh, another good one. Subscribe to the mailing list. That's it. Ciao.